Hello and welcome to another episode of Battleground Ukraine with me, Patrick Bishop and Saul David. We're just back from Ukraine where we've been with our producer James Hodgson, a great trip, which really helped our understanding of what's going on at every level. It proved once again there's no substitute for seeing things for yourself. And hopefully you, our loyal listeners, will get the benefit of some of the insights we've gained. Yes, indeed. And we're going to need them this week as the situation, to be frank, is pretty hard to read. The Ukrainian counteroffensive is progressing, but it's progressing slowly. Does that mean it's in danger of running out of steam? We'll be analyzing that, as well as some intriguing stories of further dissension between elements of the Russian forces and also moves by President Zelensky to clean up corruption inside the Ukrainian military. But let's kick off with the offensive. What news have you heard, Patrick? Well, it seems to be another story of incremental gains. And this comes to us via official Ukrainian communiques, which are, as is usually the case with military reports, rather stilted and only give the bare facts. But we can test their veracity against that version of events um, by uh, what's put out by Russian mill bloggers, who, who, as we've often said, is uh, turning out to be a far more reliable source than their own government's statements. And they, the mill bloggers, by and large, are confirming what the Ukrainians are saying. So though the detail may be a bit sparse, the basic narrative can be assumed, I think, to be accurate. So what do we know? Well, the counteroffensive is proceeding on several sectors of the front. In Zaporizhia, they're continuing to push south in the direction of uh, Melitopol. And in Donetsk, there's still very intensive fighting around Bakhmut, uh, which despite the fact that Ukraine is said to have captured heights overlooking the city, is still holding on, clearly, or the Russians are holding on there. And there's evidence that they're even launching pretty determined counterattacks. Um, I watched a video posted a few days ago which showed just a handful of Russian tanks bounding over the fields and blasting to bits a street in the village of Klishkivka, uh, which is just south of Bakhmut. And they're not apparently coming under any fire as, as, they, as they advance. So absolutely no signs of any easy gains or rapid progress as far as I can see at the moment. No, there has been progress. I'll, I'll come to that in a moment. But the Ukrainians have been quite frank about the difficulties they're facing. A Ukrainian colonel called Petro Chernik has stated that the slow pace is due to the density of the Russian defences. We've talked about that before. And he says they're arranged in what military speak describes as three echelons. So first, a line of minefields stretching several kilometres wide. Then a second line of artillery positioned to fire down on advancing troops as they try to work their way through the minefields. And finally, a third trench line, which will probably be the easiest nut to crack if you ever make it past the first two obstacles. So what are the chances of that, do you think, Patrick? Well, I'm the resident pessimist here, aren't I, Saul? So I have to say that I do worry about the rate of progress. I've been looking, as I said, at the video footage that's coming out in recent days, and the picture I'm getting is that the Russians are holding pretty firm. And this little sign of the collapse that we've often said is Ukraine's best hope of achieving a stunning success. There's some evidence of, of the Russians abandoning forward trench lines. But if you've got minefields behind that, that doesn't actually mean a huge lot, does it? And what really this brings home to me is the sore need that Ukrainians have of uh, air assets to suppress the artillery and provide cover to allow some degree of fluid movement forward, which is, at the moment, it's a, that's too costly, far too costly to contemplate. Um, 
The decision of the US not to answer Ukraine's repeated calls in this department is something I think that the West is going to bitterly regret in the future. If that is, they sincerely want Ukraine to win this war outright. I say this because in Kiev, I heard someone, an American insider, as it happened, openly doubting that this was the case. And their view was that uh, in real politic terms, Washington might see it better if the war sort of ground on and, and eventually came to some kind of stalemate, which would create a situation that would keep Russia preoccupied and weakened, thereby de-escalating the crisis from the American point of view. And it could be also presented as a quasi-victory. And we've heard this point of view before, haven't we, by so-called realists like Anatole Levin on this very podcast, in fact. And their argument being that Ukraine has established its, its existence once and for all, and they should take the win and accept that it's a tough world and you can't always get what you want. Well, for the uh, sake of balance, I'm the resident optimist on the podcast, uh, and I'm not convinced by the argument you just put forward, Patrick. I know it's not yours, but you seem to have some kind of sympathy with the point of view that it might be in America's interest to uh, not get a resolution out of this crisis. I don't think that's the case uh, because its bigger concern is China, as we've mentioned many times. And what I think the Americans have calculated is they need to send a very strong signal to Beijing that wars of aggression do not pay. Taiwan, of course, is in play, which is why, in my view, Russia needs to be seen to lose this war. And that won't be the case if it's able to keep any territorial gains, particularly any territorial gains after the full-scale invasion of last year. The other factor that some analysts are missing is that Ukrainians seem to be pretty united, not 100% united, but pretty united from what we've seen in the last week in their determination to keep fighting until they achieve victory. And in pretty much everyone's minds that we spoke to out there, victory is not just the status quo antebellum last year, it's actually recovering Crimea too. Now, You could say, well, the Americans and NATO may just abandon them and leave them in the lurch if this goes on for long enough. But will they really do that? I'm not convinced they will, partly because they've dug themselves in this deep already. And secondly, and here's the really key point, Patrick, populations in the West, I think, that is the ordinary voter, won't let them do that, even in America. This is a war that has to be won, in my view. Um, we can debate on what winning means, but it's a, going a lot further than the Levin argument, however long it takes. Now, I'd also take slight issue with you, Patrick, on the significance of recent Ukrainian gains, particularly in Western Zaporizhia, where Ukrainian forces advanced northeast of Robotny and on the Donetsk Zaporizhia Oblast border, where men of the 35th Brigade have been pictured raising the Ukrainian flag in the village of Urazhen. And still, despite Russian claims to the contrary, and there were many made this week, interesting enough, it seems that Ukraine has yet to commit the bulk of its mechanized reserve. So there is still an opportunity for a major breakthrough. And what seems to be going on now is that Ukrainians have concentrated on knocking out artillery, which they seem to be doing pretty effectively. We spoke to a colonel last week, the colonel we've had a couple of times on the podcast, who said that the armed forces still have a lot of faith in the general staff and what they're trying to do. 
Yeah, well, I mean, I just want to clear something up. I'm not, I'm not in any way saying that I sympathise with the so-called realist point of view at all. I think it's actually deeply unrealistic. I think, like you, that Russia has to be seen to to have lost this and lost badly. And uh, I don't uh, have any problem with them being humiliated in the process because that may have political consequences internally, which will be good for Russia and for the world in the long term. So, no, I want to, I want to see a decisive victory by the Ukrainians. I'm just passing on what I heard from someone who seems to be in the know, which also reflects what I read in and see in American media. I'm, I'm constantly surprised at how much animus there is in sections of the uh, Republican right to Ukraine, completely founded on on nothing substantial as far as, far as I can see, but just some kind of deeply partisan nature of, of American politics, where just because the Biden administration is pro-Ukraine, it means that uh, Republicans are viscerally and vehemently anti-Ukraine, which seems to be a very stupid way of doing politics. Yeah, on the, on these uh, battlefield gains, yeah, but it's, it's very incremental, isn't it? And sure, uh, they're taking out artillery with with counter-battery fire, which is, of course, incredibly important. Otherwise, you're never going to get through these minefields. But I'm just uh, slightly gloomy about about the rate of progress. That's what it really comes down to. Anyway, uh, just on that, looking for for a positive, (laughs) there there are further signs of of instability inside the Russian military. We've seen plenty of fissures opening up over the course of the war. And there's been a few reports lately of clashes between Chechen fighters and ethnic Russian troops in a village about 25 miles from Mariupol, in which 11 people were killed, seven of them civilians and the rest Russian soldiers. What seems to have happened is that a bunch of Chechens have been drinking heavily, and they got into a fracas with their Russian comrades, and a gun battle ensued. I assume the poor civilian victims, who included two teenage girls, were caught up in the crossfire. And there have been other stories, haven't there, sort of Chechens fighting Wagner soldiers and uh, and also of ethnic Buryat soldiers from eastern Siberia clashing with ethnic Russian troops. Well, as we've said many times, the Chechens have a well-deserved reputation as being among the worst elements of Russia's constituent forces, uh, which is saying something given their literally atrocious conduct in this war. And when we were in Bucha the other day, the scene of the massacre, which gave us a stark idea of what we could expect from Putin's army, Igor, who lived through the occupation, told us a story about how one of his neighbors had the misfortune to be standing by the side of the road when a Russian column passed. Now, he stood there stock still, not daring to move, hoping that nothing would happen. And nothing did happen while the Russian column was moving. But then some troop carriers with Chechens passed And one of them casually raised his weapon and shot this harmless old man dead just for the fun of it. So that's what you're dealing with, with the Chechens. Well, let's move on to a very interesting story that broke while we were in country. It was announced that uh, President Zelensky had sacked every single one of the country's regional army recruitment heads as part of his ongoing battle against corruption. He said a state investigation had exposed abuses by officials ranging from taking bribes to transporting draft eligible men across the border, despite a wartime ban on them leaving the country. He said this system should be run by people who know exactly what war is and why cynicism and bribery during war is treason. And he went on to add that those who had been sacked would be replaced by recent veterans and soldiers who'd been wounded 
at the front. Well, this is quite shocking stuff, isn't it? So especially when we hear so much about how Ukrainians are pretty much 100% behind the war. Well, in my view, you can take it two ways. You can say this is evidence that corruption still exists, and that's pretty shocking in itself. Or you could look at it from the other perspective, which is that corruption is so deeply embedded in Ukraine and has been for a long time that this is evidence that Zelensky and the people around him are doing everything they can to root it out every time it rears its ugly head. So if you're an optimist like me, you say this is a good sign, not per se, of course, but the reality is, as we know, when we spoke to a guy again during our recent trip who had himself done an awful lot to wipe out or or at least uh, root out corruption. But he also acknowledged that there are an awful lot of people uh, still in Ukraine who are operating in this sort of way. And there's clearly, uh, we got a sense from him, but also talking to other people, a lot of anger and resentment against a certain class of rich profiteers, the offspring uh, we calculate of the oligarchs and their milieu, who seem to be doing everything they can to bribe officials to give them a deferment on medical grounds or whatever they can get that enables them to leave the country or dodge the draft. Um, It's pretty despicable. I think the bigger picture over all of this, Patrick, is that in my calculation, this is a relatively small number of people. And the fact that these uh, recruitment heads have been sacked is a good sign. But, But do you see it as an indication of a deeper malaise in the country? Well, not you know. I think you're you're absolutely right. It's obviously a big, ongoing uh, exercise program policy. Uh, but we did sort of pick up a bit of a vibe there, didn't we? That there are these uh, kind of rich kids, you know, the, the sons of of, um, of of rich men. You know, we saw a few kind of flashy, very expensive cars racing up and down the, the roads, and you kind of got a sense that they're a kind of despised minority. But, you know, it, it is sort of slightly depressing that there are officials still in place who are prepared to take these backhanders to let one of these, let these kids slip across the border or waive a, a document that shows they've got some medical condition or they're doing some vital job that prevents them being sent to the front. But, yeah, but by and large, as our friend was saying, you know, you're dealing with generations of corruption and you don't change that overnight. So uh, even though you might put these new mayors with clean hands in place at the top. He's working with a lot of people beneath him who are still rooted to the old old system and, and um, that that is going to take time. Okay, well, that's it for this half. Do join us in part two for listeners' questions and hear a fascinating response to a query we received asking us what life is like inside the areas occupied by the Russians. Welcome back. Well, we're going to kick off with a really illuminating insight into what life is like for those still living in the areas of eastern Ukraine captured by the Russians and their local allies. And this includes, of course, the Donbass area, which in the Soviet era was heavily industrialized. This was in response to a question from a listener who wanted to know what conditions were like there, what sort of people stayed, etc. The fact is, we know very little as the Russians, by and large, don't allow independent media in there. Now, the following info comes from someone called Vlad, who lived in that part of the world until he was 15 when he came to the UK. Now, the first part is about his own experiences, and the second is a testimony of a family friend who still lives there. And uh, this is what Vlad said. 
The first thing to note is that even before the war, that part of Ukraine was pretty grim. When I visited in the 2010s after a 10-year break, I was quite shocked looking at it through the eyes of a long-term UK resident. Donetsk region was a relatively desirable place to live in the Soviet Union due to the abundance of well-paid jobs in the local coal mines, factories, etc., and was well supplied with food and amenities. This brought people from all over the Soviet Union, many of them displaced by the Second World War. It also attracted a lot of questionable people as well, because in the Soviet Union, ex-cons were restricted from living in the larger cities like Moscow and Kiev. So crime was always high. The late 80s and 90s saw a huge decline in the quality of life and a further increase in crime, both petty and organized. During the Ukrainian days, there was a chronic lack of investment and a gradual collapse of the industries, which stopped being competitive. Sure, the center of Donetsk was quite pleasant and was tidied up for the 2012 Euro football tournament, but areas away from the center and smaller towns were crumbling away and were pretty miserable places to live. A sizable proportion of the population, especially older people, harbored a deep sense of nostalgia for the Soviet days. I believe this, along with the limited connection that many residents have with Ukrainian identity and the non-stop Ukraine bashing by the Russian media, are the reasons that the Donetsk region is where it is now. Now, in part two, he gives the testimony of a family friend who has retired and decided to stay in Donetsk for family reasons. That person said that in recent times, there's been an influx of Russians, especially from the poorer regions. This person lived in the same neighborhood all their life and commented how much it had changed. It is possible that the new arrivals were encouraged by the Russian authorities to move there or quite likely found that their prospect of a life in war-torn Donetsk was better than their places of origin. Russia, this person adds, has many grim areas too. Now, in these areas, there's a sense of lawlessness and threat of being reported and investigated by the acting authorities. A lot of people like this witness keep quiet and limit travel and contact with others to the very minimum. There are many who are 100% solid on the war and vocal supporters of Russia. The jobs are badly paid, prices are high, and there are shortages of affordable products. The friend recollected queues to buy fresh chicken in shops. The economy is characterized as bad as it was during the final days of the Soviet Union. And Vlad concludes that if you're pro-Russian in the occupied areas, have a decent source of money and a low risk of conscription, you might find that life there is good. For all the others, he suspects, it's hell on earth. Well, that was a fascinating, more than a glimpse, wasn't it? It gave us a real picture of what life is like there. Now let's move on to the questions. One here from Ben Winters. What are the critical success factors uh, which you don't feel are currently in place for a significant breakthrough? Well, you know, I'll just quickly say something, which is, you know, what I was saying earlier. I think it really brought home to me the missing element in the picture here from the Ukrainian point of view is air power. You know, they've got maneuver, they've got armor, they've got armor, they've got you know pretty well trained troops, they've got motivation, all the rest of it. But what they really need to complete their portfolio is, is significant offensive air power, something that will allow the troops a degree of security as they move forward. Do, do you agree with that, Saul? 
Yes, air power and uh, longer range missiles, of course, the ATAC-Ms, as we've been uh, instructed to call them from America, which still have not arrived. Having said that, of course, they have Storm Shadow, which they're using very effectively. I think, you know, just to get back to my earlier point, Patrick, the Ukrainians are having to use what they've got. And what they've got allows them to, as we've discussed, now concentrate on destroying artillery. Remember, they are now using various other types of munitions bombs that can be released sort of 25, 30 miles away from the target, which are are having some success in knocking out Russian artillery and carrying on doing what they're doing, basically, which is uh, knocking out command centers and also the archeries of supply, which the storm shadows are being directed against. And these include bridges. The possibility, therefore, is that even without the extra kit that they need, they will still get a decisive breakthrough, although, of course, it would have happened a lot earlier with air power and longer range weapons. Okay, Rebecca Caro here. How delayed or compromised is the summer offensive? What do you think the Russians' plans are now? Well, I think that in a in a couple of words, Rebecca, their plan is simply to hold on. <laughs> I think their calculation will be well, we're suffering fewer casualties now that we're not attacking. It doesn't take a huge amount of military skill to sit in a trench or fire an artillery piece, and the minefields are largely doing their job for them at the moment. I think this is an optimistic point of view from the Russian perspective because, you know, winter's not that far away. That's going to have an effect on morale. And also the calculation that time is on his side that Putin makes, I think may turn out to be mistaken. He's in for a longish wait. Uh, I don't see the Biden administration's resolve slackening between now and the next election if he's hoping for some regime change there. And uh, that's a long time in which uh, Ukraine's hardware uh, situation will hopefully improve. We've got a question here from Andrew, uh, which is interconnected to the last two. And it's uh, that Ukraine seems to be targeting artillery. Do you have any idea how many more pieces they need to destroy before Russia effectively runs out? Well, Estimates are, and we heard more detail of this when we were in Ukraine, that Russia began with about 11,000 pieces of artillery, and more than half of them have already been knocked out. Now, of course, those are statistics coming from the Ukrainian side, and we have very little uh, reliable sources from the Russian side. But one thing we do know from some of the mill blogger sources recently is that the rate of artillery fire on the Russian side seems to be slackening. Some interesting information from this, actually from a Chechen commander saying that his Vostok battalion uh, wasn't able to continue the defense uh, of an important village because they didn't have artillery support. And it's a similar sort of claim, of course, that Wagner was making many months ago. So I think there's no doubt that the destruction of Russian artillery pieces is having some effect on the battlefield. Okay, another question here from Ron Lehman. Uh, Your views on UKR, that's Ukrainian force generation. Is the country fully mobilized? Who has been mobilized up till now and how? And is there a need for another round uh, of conscription? Patrick, what do you think? Well, I think I'm just going to give some impressions about, we don't know in terms of numbers, but I I think I'm thinking actually back to a a related question, Ron, which was about whether you felt, uh, whether in our visit we felt, the country was engaged in, in total war, uh, and I think that's something we can answer. From um, my observation of, of Kiev, wandering around the streets, I didn't get the, the feeling that the country is engaged in a total war. And indeed, you could be forgiven apart from the um, odd air raid siren warning that there was a war going on at all. I, I think 
this is a good good thing, as I'll come on to explaining, but I'll just give a bit more detail. Something that surprised me was the absence of intrusive propaganda. I was expecting the place to be uh, plastered in giant posters with patriotic slogans, but there's very little of that. Here and there, you see simple portraits of some of those who've died, young men, middle-aged men, family men, which is a much quieter reminder, I think, of what is at stake. Another surprising thing, it did not see many men in uniform. We asked about this. And, uh, of course, you know, a lot of the guys you see on the streets are soldiers back on, the, on leave from the front. But when they go out, they seem to feel more comfortable in jeans and shorts and T-shirts rather than in, than in fatigues. And I found this very reassuring. So, you know, this is a citizen army which is fighting for peace. The women you see are very self-assured, very stylish. You see them strolling down the tree-lined streets, walking their dogs. But this is, this is a really dog-loving society, which seems to me as another sign of a healthy nation. And uh, in, in Kiev itself, apart from when there's a missile alert or attack, it's a very bustling, vibrant city full of energy and confidence. I know I keep going on about this, but it has the best food, the best restaurants and bars of any city I know, way better than Paris, where I've lived for many years off and on, or indeed London, and it's also a hell of a lot cheaper. Okay, question here from Clark Campbell, again linked to the counteroffensive and Ukrainian capabilities. He says, I'd like to hear what operational capabilities they believe, that's the Ukrainians believe, that F-16s would give that the Ukrainian Air Force doesn't currently have, given that some NATO kit has been retrofitted onto their existing fleet. It would also be great to have a big interview with one of their pilots. Or from the US side, could the main reason why F-16s are being incessantly delayed is the simple fact for them to be effective, they'd have to operate offensively over Russian airspace and hit ground targets, e.g. air defense, and that's unacceptable to the US. Um, Okay, we'll deal with the second one first, actually. I mean, it's interesting that the, the calls, of course, are still from everyone we met in Ukraine for the F-16s. And of course, there has been some movement on that. Some European countries, as we've mentioned before, including the Netherlands, are already training F-16 pilots. And last week, uh, significantly, I think, the Biden administration offered to pick up some of the slack of training if those European countries couldn't cope with the numbers that Ukraine wanted them to train. So we are moving forward to, to a situation where F-16s would be deployed. Now, if they are deployed, what effect will they have? Well, two effects, really. One, they can be used very effectively against those Russian aircraft that, of course, have been trying to knock out tanks as they advance, Ukrainian tanks, in particular attack helicopters, but they can also be used in a ground attack role, close support for Ukrainian troops as they move forward. And you don't have the situation which Clark has mentioned, that this would be a problem attacking Russian territory, because of course, most of that fighting would be done, would be being done within occupied Ukraine. And there's no doubt that the F-16s will make a big difference. Okay, we have a question from Russ Millam in Toronto, Canada. Can we learn anything about the way that Russia may end the war from what happened in Afghanistan? What were the conditions that made Russia pull out? Patrick, what's your feeling about that? I think the situations are quite different. We've often, uh, and many other people have often drawn the comparison between the relatively low level of, of Russian casualties, uh, which led to them uh, making the decision that it just wasn't worth the effort. There were about 15,000 dead spread over a nine-year campaign compared with, you know, you can probably say 10 times that in terms of overall casualties in an 18-month 
campaign. Well, I think it's just the situations politically are very, very different. You know, Afghanistan was a faraway country of which they, uh, most Russians knew little. Uh, they couldn't really buy the line that this somehow was, um, you know, essential to Russia's interest to, to be fighting this clearly unwinnable war. It went on and on and on. And there was, you know, there an example of, of pressure from the street actually translating into a change of policy by the Kremlin. They didn't have the same propaganda buildup uh, that you got here in Ukraine. So this this war has been the public have been prepared for this war for years and years and years. And even though you know at the beginning people were puzzled at why it should be that that Russians who often had family uh, in Ukraine, a society that looked felt very much like their own society, why would they be they would be able to regard them as enemies and as a threat to them. But as we've seen in the history of of that part of of Europe, Eastern and Central Europe, it's very easy for neighbours, people who appear to have so much in common to actually kill each other in in large numbers. And there's a very long and and tragic history of that, a recent history of that. So, yeah, I think um, it was much harder to explain away uh, the sacrifices in the Afghan war and make some sense of them than it is in the current one. Uh, so yeah, I don't think there are uh, many lessons we can learn from that, that because the you know the, the comparison is just not very balanced. Okay, a question from Julian Swire in Auckland, New Zealand, uh, and he says it seems obvious to me that with the costs of the sanctions and the daily costs of the war, surely the Russian economy can't sustain another eighteen months of this. It must be hemorrhaging the Russian coffers. But he goes on to say there, there seems to be very little information that is, that is available on this topic. I'd be interested in your thoughts. Well, just this week, actually, there was some quite significant news about the economic impact of the war on Russia, uh, and it came from Moscow itself. And the big news is that the ruble has already fallen 25% in value this year. And as a result of that, of course, inflation is increasing. And in an attempt to stabilize this, the central bank has just put up interest rates from 8 to 12.5%. And you can already see the finger pointing going on. Uh, Putin's official spokesman saying, well, this is all the fault of the central bank. But clearly, the economy is creaking. And this, I suspect, will only get worse. So, of course, we're watching the military front in particular and the diplomatic front. But the economic front is just as important. And I think these are early, but also quite serious signs that the Russian economy cannot sustain this conflict for the foreseeable future, even if Putin's tactic, as we've suggested it is, is just to uh, hold fast and hope the West lose interest. Just going to finish with an email we received from Sandy Scott, who's a Canadian veteran of the war in Afghanistan. It's on this subject of the psychological casualties of wars and how they're, they're treated. And Sandy writes, I served as a chaplain on rear guard duty at home and deployed in combat in Afghanistan. This is with the Canadian uh, troops working with the multinational force in Afghanistan. And subsequently, he goes on, I've been diagnosed with severe chronic PTSD and other physical injuries. He says, on our show, uh, we reflected on the experience of war and trauma in Ukraine by civilians and soldiers and asked the question about how society deals with post-combat trauma. You both tried to gauge the experience of British soldiers in Afghanistan against the experience of the Ukrainians. In a post-combat Ukraine, says Sandy, an advantage they will share over Afghanistan veterans 
is that they won't have to explain themselves. There'll be more compassion and understanding because everyone experienced combat trauma. Afghanistan veterans in Canada and the UK live in worlds that have no way to imagine our experiences. Nobody in the next generation of the Ukraine will have to explain why they are the way they are. And I think that's a very, very good point and something that you must have heard this too, saw from guys that you you know who, who served in Iraq and Afghanistan. They come home to a society that's only had a sort of, you know, semi-detached uh, interest in the story, probably don't support the the actions of the government or, or the um, military there in any sort of wholehearted way and basically um, think, well, you know, if you join the army, that's what you do and and can't necessarily expect to experience any kind of, you know, real deep sympathy. Of course, you know, the sympathy of one human being feels for another, but certainly no one can really imagine uh, what it was like out there. You went to both places and you really had to have been there to to understand it, I think. So, yeah, I think that's a very, very good point. It's a tremendous point. And, uh, you know, if we continue the analogy, the the people coming back from the Russian side will be the ones who, like our veterans coming out of Iraq and Afghanistan, had to go into a society that really hadn't experienced, or at least thus far, hadn't experienced the effects of war. And they ultimately will have to suffer in silence. So if we want to extend any sympathy to the Russian side, it should certainly be for those poor conscripts who didn't want to fight this war, as we learned from that diary in the Sunday Times a few weeks ago, and have come back suffering the consequences. And on this same subject of war trauma, we should uh, flag up, Patrick, the extraordinary experience we had meeting a child psychologist in Ukraine uh, and talking to some of the children who were affected by war trauma. And the overall impression we got was very upbeat, actually. Uh, And of course, this is another indication of a nation dealing with war trauma right across the population. So do listen out for that in the weeks to come. That's all we have time for this week. Next Wednesday, there will be more insights into our trip to Ukraine. And on Friday, of course, we'll be bringing you the latest news and answering listeners' questions. Goodbye. Goodbye.